Well, we can uh, kind of breathe a sigh of relief. We are now at the end of Romans chapter 9, and many theologians, biblical scholars, pastors uh, call Romans chapter 9 one of the most difficult chapters because it pushes up against everything that we believe about what is fair and what is just, what is right, what God should do, and all those kinds of things. In fact, most of us would much rather skip over chapter 9, go from chapter 8, and run right to chapter 10, right? Where it says, man, the, the, even the heading there, the, second, or the first heading in there is a, a message of salvation to all. We, we want to jer- jump to verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be saved. We want to jump to that, or we want to keep on going to verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And we go, man, let's jump to that. Or we want to jump, let's go back to the Gospels, right? We want to go to that, that evangelical, evangelistic verse in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall be have everlasting life, right? We, we want to jump to those things, but... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, we have this, this layout from Romans chapter 1 all the way to the end, including Romans chapter 9. This chapter is heavy. This chapter is challenging and it's hard. But there are many glorious and weighty truths that are found in this chapter and they create some very important questions that we must be willing to ask and answer there's some things that we've got to wrestle through about the character and the person of god and how he works out salvation how does god work in in his economy how does god work So talking about the sovereignty, the reign and the rule of God, and how it relates to our understanding of God's actions and how it then intersects with our own personal experiences of conversion is a great and glorious mystery. How do all those things come together? How is God working out as a sovereign God, as one who has his own actions, and how does that work in our own stories of faith? There are amazing truths that we, we have got to examine, and there are a number of just tensions, right? Tensions that we have got to be working through. So let me kind of do a brief look back of where we have been with Romans 9. As I began this Romans 9 section about the mystery of righteousness, I gave you kind of four pastoral admonitions, things for you to kind of remember. And I I, I wanted to remind you, and I wanted to encourage you to consider first, 
remember that the God of Romans 8, the God who made all of these promises, is also the God of Romans chapter 9. We don't have a special God of all these promises in Romans chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 11, 10, and beyond. He is the same God, the God of Romans chapter 10. We've also got to remember to be willing to allow the Bible, the Bible to shape and reshape your vision of who God is. We've got to read Scripture in totality and say, what does it say about who God is? I know I've got these personal ideas. I know I've got these feelings and these tensions. But what does Scripture say in its totality about the character of God? After all, if it is inspired, it therefore must be true. I also encourage you, admonish you to embrace hard texts. Often, when it comes to even uh, hard words from an employer, hard words from someone who loves you, you take them to heart, but sometimes you just want to discard them, right? It's like, ah, let's just move on. I can't, I can't deal with this. It's too much. I, I, a brief story. Even with uh, my friend's sermon this week at, at his funeral, I had one guy come up to me. And after, after hundreds of people, had, thank you so much. This was, that was absolutely beautiful. That was great. One person came up and just said, you know, it was a little long. <laughs> Everything in my flesh wanted to reach out and strangle him. <laughs> but I had to even take that word to heart, embrace it, and say, huh, for one, it was. And that's the same with text. We gotta, it, it, it is real, and we've got to look at all of it and deal with the hard text. We also have to, I encourage you to take the long view when it comes to deep and challenging truths in the Bible. Sit in them, marinate in them. Look at where is, where is this going? So these four admonitions were, were important to hear at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, but they're especially important right now as we are in the middle of this text and as we consider what is probably considered one of the hardest passages of Scripture. So we also have to remember what we're talking about here. Romans chapter 9 is written because Paul is anticipating your questions as well as he is anticipating the questions of his audience that he was primarily writing to. He said, oh, I know, I can hear your questions coming up because you have just heard all these glorious, amazing truths in Romans chapter 8 and you are going to be asking me how can we consider these promises to even be true if the promises made to Israel have not come true? How can these be true if this is not true? Israel rejected their own Messiah, and the shift of focus now comes towards the, the Gentiles, and that for a Jewish person is very problematic. Very problematic. So Israel's unbelief, as it relates to the, all the glorious promises of God, is a central issue. 
So Paul's argument kind of flows like this. God's promises are still being fulfilled. How are they being fulfilled? They are being fulfilled to a faithful remnant, the Israel within Israel, this faithful group. And this, this remnant was chosen by divine election, God's hand in choosing these people. God secures his promises of grace. And it was, he secures his promises of grace. How? Not by any condition found in mankind. There is no goodness that God looks down the pipe and says, oh, you're good enough, I'm going to choose you. On top of that, God is not unfair in securing any of his promises in any way. It's not unfair. God is not unfair. God is free to be merciful to and harden whomever he wills. Why? Because he is God. That's God's freedom. The ultimate value in the universe, and this is something we have got to really wrap our our head around, is we have got to understand that the ultimate value in the universe is not you. I know. I know. Can you believe it? The ultimate value in the universe is the glory of God. That is the supreme, supreme thing that we have got to wrap our hearts and our lives around. And we've also got to remember that fairness and the security of God's promises are rooted in the fact that God is being God. The main point that we have learned was that the glory of God or the proclamation of his name in all the earth is the most foundational thing. It's more foundational than our own assessment of what feels to be right, what feels to be fair, what feels to be just. Now, it's not that God is unrighteous, and it's not that God is unfair or unjust. He is none of these things. The issue, friends, is our feeble human mind's ability to properly and correctly assess, assess what is right, what is fair, or just as it relates to God. And there's many times in our lives where one's definition of fair is skewed by the limitations of our understanding of what really is going on, right? I, I, I think about Ferguson, what happened in Ferguson. There's some of us who are going, really, again? This is going, writing, what is going on? But our limited understanding, because we are not in the situation, we don't have those struggles and those personal things going on. So I don't understand, so therefore our perception is skewed. And it's easy to cast judgment, isn't it? The same is true, and even more so with God. It seems to me that most human beings have a way that we like to view life. A way that we like to make sense of our world. And it sounds kind of like this. Life should be fair. Anybody feel that? Life should be fair. Uh, I should be free to choose my own life. Kind of Frank Sinatra, right? I had it my way, you know. Or 
I need to make sense of all of my life. Anybody feel that, that tension? I just want to make sense of it all. And what does that kind of, how does that elevate you to the level of wanting to be like God? All these statements are true, and but they might not be true in the way that we had previously thought. Fairness, freedom, understanding are vital parts of our humanity and even vital parts of our Christianity. As we sang that song about uh, justice and mercy, that should be a very core, integral part of who we are. We should desire fairness. We should desire mercy. We should desire justice. But Romans 9 teaches us that there is something more foundational in our fairness, our freedom, and our understanding. What lies underneath is God's definition of fairness. God's freedom as God. And God's divine purposes that are beyond human comprehension. If you can define God for me perfectly and say, I got my, I got my bead on God and I've got my mind totally wrapped around him, I'm going to say, you're a liar. You are, you are delusional. You have minimized your God so he can fit neatly in a box. He is far beyond that. That is why we worship. You are God. I am not. Praise be to God. So our text begins with a, uh, another question that Paul is anticipating coming from you. And the third question is found in Romans chapter 9. The first one that we saw was in verses 1 through 13. And Paul is anticipating that there's a problem coming from them about Israel's unbelief, right? Can God be true? If Israel is still unbelieving, how can we trust God? The second question is found in verse 14. Is, there, is God being unjust in any way? But now we come to the third question in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If everything that you have said in the, these first two points is true, how can God find fault with me? I mean, if God is God, how can we resist his will? Paul knows the kind of response that the people will have and what, what he had just said about God having mercy on whomever he wills and hardening whoever he wills. He, put this, he has put this issue front and center. And let me restate the question with clarity. This is the question, and here it is up there. If God's sovereignty means that he has mercy and hardens whomever he will, then how can God still find fault with anyone since it all depends on him? Seriously. If it all depends on him and he is going to woo me over or he's going to damn me to hell. Seriously, is this even fair? And this is a plain reading of the text. And while the question is uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable, it confirms our flow of thought in the verses 1 through 18. And it says it's true. 
Paul highlights this question because it is a very natural question to ask in light of what he has just said. And Paul is going to give us three solid answers. How, how to respond to this. If God is sovereign and he's able to show mercy on whomever he wants to and he's able to harden whomever he wants to, uh, how can God show fault if it's all dependent on him? And here's Paul's first answer. And it's found in verses 19 through 22. The first answer is, God is God. And it, this seems to highlight in this section the difference between God as creator and human beings as creatures and the created. It really does this. It moves exponentially higher and lower than we ever thought. Paul aims to reestablish God's place and our place. It helps us stay in our lanes. Listen. But who are you, man, to answer back to God? Who's that sound like, by the way? There's another section of scripture. Job, right? <laughs> who darkens my doorway? Who are you? Where were you when? Anyway, what will what, will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one uh, make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and for another dishonorable use? There's a number of different things to notice here in verses 20 to 21. First, the tone of the answer indicates there is more than a question being asked. Paul anticipates that a human being, after hearing verses 1 through 18, is charging God with an injustice. So Paul is answering, he, he's saying there's more than a question, there's an attitude that has got to be addressed in the heart of hearts of mankind. The wording, who are you, oh man? Who are you? Is certainly a response to a complaint and not just a question. Have you ever had that? Okay, in... In child rearing, there are those moments where I just go, are you serious? Who are you to ask that question? Any of you ever been guilty of that? Are you serious? Do you know who I am? I brought you into this world. And what? I can take you out. There's that attitude of stay in your lane. Who are you to bring a charge up against me? when I am doing what is right and according to my character and my God-given responsibilities. Who are you, oh child, to raise these questions? And so part of the dynamic involved here is, is, is a question that reveals even a lack of understanding or a lack of respect for the difference between man and God. There is a lack of understanding. We love to blur lines, don't we? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Let's keep the lines clear. To charge God with injustice is to forget who God really is. And that is why Paul uses this tone. Who are you, O oh man? 
Who are you? And secondly, Paul uses, because we are pitcher kind of people, he, he gives us a metaphor or an illustration to help us understand, to make, make the difference between God and mankind even more clear. He picks up on a very familiar scriptural kind of illusion to a potter and clay. And he, he tries to do this in order to highlight God's freedom as God to do whatever he wishes to do. And as a potter, God has complete, absolute authority over the clay and is able to make the vessels for differing purposes. That is who God is. He's the potter. God was free to create Jacob, and God was free to set his love upon Jacob, and he was free to create Pharaoh and free to not set his love on Pharaoh. The potter and clay analogy is meant to help us keep categories in line. Who is God? Who is man? And we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds as we wrestle with the mystery of God's ways. Friends, this is a mystery. It's difficult. Last week we talked about uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, about this is an antinomy. Uh, it, there's, it feels like this is true and this is true, but how do these two go together? That creates a mystery, but they're true. You can't discard one because you don't like it or discard the other because it's too big or too lofty. This is who God is. So there's also, we also see that there's various illustrations in the Old Testament that reference the potter and the clay. In Jeremiah 18, it's used to describe God's authority over the nation of Judah and his call to them to repent. In Isaiah 29, 16, the, the analogy is used for Judah's rebellion against God's rule in their lives. You can hear it say this. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed of him, say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Do you hear the accusations and the attitude? The point of this illustration is not the specific Old Testament cross-reference. That's not the point here but it is to take a familiar image of a potter who exerts his full authority over the clay. So the question of God's injustice fails to recognize who we are talking about and who we really are. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the creator. We are the creatures. So try to understand as much as you can this issue from God's perspective. Think about it. We often love to think about from my perspective and how it affects me personally, right? Think about it from God's perspective. Romans chapter 1, verse 23 says, All of 
human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. And because, why? Because they have exchanged the glory of God for the glory that we can manage, that we can create, that we can control. It also says in Romans 1.25, human beings have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We also see that creatures owe their whole lives and their whole existence to God, having corporately and individually rejected him. And because of that, they deserve nothing, nothing but swift, divine, and eternal judgment. That's what we deserve. Swift, divine, eternal judgment. I think part of our problem in looking at Romans chapter 9 is the fact that we have a way, way, way too low of an appreciation for the treachery and the injustice of the rebellion of the human race. It's true. Basically, babies are good. Right? Until you have one. We basically love to wrap our ideas around, well, human beings are basically good. No. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we deserve his swift, eternal, and merciless judgment. That is what we deserve. You see, God is not under any obligation. He is under no obligation whatsoever to save any human being whatsoever. And it is stunning and absolutely scandalous that God actually did. That's the scandal of the gospel. In fact, in the New Testament, it uses this word, scandalon, to describe the gospel. It is scandalous that God chose Mercy. Most people come to the issue of divine sovereignty and they ask, why didn't he just save them all? And the angels in heaven are are going, why did he save any of them? They peer into this and go, what in the world is God doing? Because of his character, he should obliterate humanity. No sin can stand in his presence. We think about Isaiah and that that moment, woe is me, when he stands in, in the glory of God in the temple. Woe is me. And I think the difference between those two questions of why didn't he save them all and Why did he save any of them? The the difference between those questions relate to the lens through which you view yourself, the universe, the problem of sin, and God himself. So Paul's first answer to, to the charge of injustice is simply that God is God, friends. This is who he is. And he attempts to remind us who we are talking about, and what is underneath everything that we are talking about. 
He reminds us that God is God. He is the creator. We are creatures. And it's easy to forget, isn't it? I mean, after all, as the highest of all the created order, with all of our ingenious thoughts and, and our, our own self-determination and all the laws that govern our behavior and our own created social structures, all based upon hu- our human understanding of fairness, we can easily forget that we are not ultimate. Easily. We, we can live so long in our normal little human world that we forget that it is all dependent on God. You get up in the morning and you make breakfast and you chose that egg, didn't you? You chose that bacon. You chose, if you're healthier, you did some kind of slushy kind of thing with a bunch of green stuff in it. But you, you're pretty self-determined and you are... You, you control your universe, and then you get in your car, you go off to work, you do whatever you want to, you do this, and we quickly forget that God is the creator, and I am just a creature. Suffering and the, the subject even of God's sovereignty challenge our very limited vision of reality. Coming to terms with God's supremacy and our frailty is humbling and it should be it should also be traumatic but it should also offer comfort it's humbling and tragic to see who we really are but it's comforting to know that everything in the universe, centers upon and is dependent upon God. Everything. It should bring you great comfort. God is God could be the most comforting thought that you walk out with if we could let go of our need for God to have to justify himself to us. But here's the second answer that is given. So why does God still give fault? The second answer is found in verses 22 and 23. Paul could have merely just left the answer with God is God, and that would have been enough. Could have walked out, and we had a short service. You could have gone home and had lunch early. But what does Paul do? He plums a bit deeper, and he identifies the purpose behind God's sovereignty. It's not just enough to say God is God. Paul goes, let me take you a step deeper. So in the same approach that we we heard in verses 15 through 18, first we we learned about God's name and his freedom to show mercy to whomever he chooses. And then Paul identifies some reason behind the hardening of Pharaoh that I might show my power in you. Paul now moves from who God is to the purpose behind God's actions. And he does the same thing right here. Paul moves from who God is in verses 22. And 21 to his purposes in verses 22 and 23. And here's what it says about the purposes. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that, if you're a Bible 
uh, drawing your Bible kind of guy, those are the phrases you look for, like the therefores or the buts. In order that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, this text is challenging in terms of what it says and in terms of what it doesn't say, right? So let's start at the end and let's work our way backwards. Uh, what's Paul's, Paul's point here? The point of verses 22 and 23 is that in order for God's mercy to actually be mercy, there has to be another side of the coin. In, on the other side of the coin is judgment. And wrath and destruction. Without judgment, without there being any judgment, without there being a possibility of judgment, there can be no mercy. Because mercy, by definition, means to not receive what is deserved. That is mercy. I'm not receiving what I really deserve. I remember fighting with with relatives who were much bigger than I. And they would pummel me. And what is the thing that you scream out in that? Uncle. Or mercy. Uncle, help. And that's kind of the call out. And somebody come save me, right? And mercy is like, God, save me. I don't deserve it, but save me. Without the possibility of receiving judgment, mercy isn't mercy. So, second, in order for mercy to be absolutely glorious and beautiful, it must be seen in the context of potential judgment. The reality of destruction makes mercy even more attractive and more beautiful. Imagine, if you will, that you had have a friend who was in a very precarious car accident. Right? And you, you heard about it on the phone, and you go, oh, my gosh, are you all right? And you heard through other friends uh, that, oh, my gosh, if this had happened, or if the car had moved a little faster, or if they moved to the right, he could have been dead. He could have died. But what makes it, makes you even more grateful is that moment entirely different when you see pictures of the car on Facebook or Instagram, and you go, beautiful. So the context of what your friend was saved from magnifies and intensifies his or her deliverance. Look at that. They could have had this, but they were given this. So the main point of these two verses is the way in which God's mercy would be absolutely empty and meaningless and cheap and his riches of grace less stunning without the reality, the real reality of judgment. What's more, God himself is not full of love and kindness, but he is all, not just full of love and kindness, but he is also full of righteous wrath against sin. That is the complete nature of God. Think about Good Friday, would you? 
when we look at the cross, there's something beautiful about this cross. It, it is a symbol, and that symbol, we see both mercy and judgment. And what's Paul, what Paul is saying here in verses 22 and 23 is, is nothing new. Mercy and judgment are more closely linked than we often realize, and I don't think that we often see the magnification of mercy as justification for judgment. And yet this is what the text is talking about. God aims to make his mercy gloriously known, and saving everyone would not accomplish that. hard. Taking a universalist kind of view, well, everybody will be saved in the end. God wants to highlight his mercy and therefore justice and destruction must be equally as high. So I think this text pretty clearly tells us that there are people that God chooses not to save. And as I read this text and as I, I think about the world that we live in, it seems even pretty apparent. Not everyone who is human becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, right? You, you know people in your life. But it is very important to remember that no one deserves God's mercy. No one. And it is absolutely remarkable breathtaking that he pours it out on anyone. So how does this help with our original question? Why, why does God still find fault? It helps us by reminding us that one, the ultimate goal of the universe is the display of God's mercy. God wants to put that up front for you to see. But it also shows us, in answering this question, it shows us that no one deserves mercy. God saving one, anyone is unbelievable. And, and more unbelievable than we could ever imagine, if you really think about it. So here's the last, last thing. Last answer, the final answer kind of provides both a... a an answer to the objection that's found in verse 19, and it also is going to help us transition into chapter 10. Okay? And in chapter 10, it's going to be dealing with how God deals with the Gentiles, you, you and me. So once again, Paul grounds what he's saying in the context of, of the Old Testament passages so the readers know what he is, he is saying and what he's not saying. So that he's not, they, they think that Paul's not introducing something brand new. So the answer is, can God still find fault? Well, hey guys, this is how God has always worked. Why are you surprised? Verse 24 serves as an introduction. So after making the, the case that God's aim, God's aim is to demonstrate the riches of his glory in vessels of mercy, Paul concludes, includes all those who are called in this category. 
verse 24. Further applies, verse 23. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's point is here to make it even more evident in chapters 10 and chapters 11. He's going to make it even more clear there. But he is essentially highlighting the fact that God has granted surprising mercy to these Gentiles while preserving a faithful remnant in Israel. And this would have been absolutely shocking for for Israel because they would not have been anticipating the Gentiles to even be included in this covenant of grace. But God showed mercy on those who did not deserve mercy. God operates this way because he is God and because he has a purpose to display his glory, which is beyond comprehension. And he uses this, this, uh, this brief story in here about Hosea. Hosea ma- married a woman. This poor woman's name was Gomer. Immediately when I think of Gomer, I think of Gomer Pyle, who was not the most intelligent man in the universe. But Hosea met Gomer, and their marriage was to be an illustration of God's relationship with his people. And it was also to be an illustration of how God chose to show mercy instead of judgment. And in this relationship that Hosea had, God instructed Hosea to name his second child this name. How would you like to be this name? No mercy. Dad, why'd you name me that? God told me. Your name is no mercy. And the third child was going to be called not my people. As an illustration, as symbols of God's rejection of his own people. However, God promises to reverse that course. Isn't that how the gospel works? It reverses the course And the texts cited by Paul communicate God's mercy to those who do not deserve God's mercy. It goes in Romans 9, 25, and 26. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. He he is illustrating the ways that God is being merciful. He has done that in the past. And he also does that today. This is God's M.O. He shows mercy on whom he chosen. He hardens those who he chooses to harden. And why does he do it? To elevate the beauty of God's mercy on undeserving people. God's kindness to the people of Israel is is just and it is gracious. And the same is true for us. So putting all this kind of together, we get a clear picture of Paul's answer when it comes to the charge of God's God's unfaithfulness in light of his sovereign will. 
His answer is, I'm going to highlight who God is and who we are as creatures. I, I want to identify the important link between judgment and mercy to, so that God can display the glory of God is found in Jesus Christ and this mercy. And I want to show you guys how God has always been doing this historically. This is nothing new. God has always been in this process. So Romans chapter 9 is designed to give us hope in God's promises because in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, we are all dependent upon His grace alone. Nothing that you can do. There's nothing inside of you that can say, I want God, apart from God saying, I want you. I'm going to change your heart of stone, Israel. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so that you can now respond. What a beautiful picture. So briefly, I'm going to end with just some, as we think about, as I'm thinking about ending this Romans chapter 9 with a, a sigh of relief, going through this doctrine of election, which is just controversial, there's a few things that I kind of want you to walk away with. And the first is, I want you to think about your thinking. Romans chapter 9 pushes our envelopes on our mental abilities and it challenges every one of our presuppositions about how the world and how God works. It pushes up. It reminds us that the difference between God's ways and our ways and the difference between who God is and who we are is far greater than we can ever imagine. It, it, the, the chasm is so great. This chapter gives us painfully, painfully elevated vision of who God is. It quickly knocks you down to the bottom of the heap going, oh, that's right, I'm not God. Yes, friends, for me as well, there are questions and there are implications that are left unanswered. I'm struggling through how, all of this myself. And I'm reformed. I'm Presbyterian. I'm a pastor. Been to seminary. But I'm still struggling with the questions and the implications. But I would much rather, and I'm urging you to do the same, if you are going to err, err on the side of God's sovereignty. So hopefully, in your thinking, it gives you a bigger vision of who God is. Secondly, feeling. Remember that everything in Romans chapter 9 is meant to provide comfort. Solace. In the way in which God keeps his promises. Sometimes this chapter with all of its tensions does not necessarily feel comforting. Because it's prickly, right? So let's skip over to chapter 10. Or John, run to John 3.16. Oh, God's a love for help. Okay, I'm going to rest there. But maybe there's something more helpful here than, than what we know. This passage shows us who God is. The beauty of his glory. The magnification of his name. 
and those things being the ultimate reason for everything. In other words, the doctrine of divine sovereignty invites us to find comfort through trust in God and not making sense of everything. For me, that's where I was this week. The loss of a friend. I don't get it. I hate death. I hate cancer. So do I run and try to search out and find out the meaning behind all these things and why did this happen and why did this happen and try to also raise my fist to God and, and say, why did you do this? Who are, is this really just? Instead, what do I do in these moments and this tension? I say, God, I don't know why. I don't, I don't get it. But ultimately, I've got to plan my trust in you. Because you are God, and I am not. This also kind of pushes in, friends, to how we pray. This text should encourage and not discourage prayer in your life, especially for loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ. Divine sovereignty is never, ever, ever at odds with the call for passionate prayer and evangelism. Am I going ahead? Okay, good, I am not. Prayer, in your prayers, you should be praying for an open door. You should be praying for open and soft hearts. You should be praying that God would destroy the things that your loved one is trusting in. You ever pray those kind of prayers? God, he loves this more than he loves you. Destroy that. We should be praying that God would captivate his or her heart. Every person who disagrees with my treatment with Romans chapter 9 prays this at some level. Why? Because the essence of prayer is asking God to do what we cannot do without him. That's really what prayer is about. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something is broken. You can only fix it. Lastly, a right understanding of Romans chapter 9 changes the way that we do living. Romans chapter 9 should never decrease your passion for evangelism as if our actions in proclaiming the gospel don't matter. Well, God's going to save me anyway. I don't need to do anything. What? Read the whole of Scripture. On the contrary, it should embolden you because it means that you are actually cooperating with God's activity and the success of your evangelism, your presentation of the gospel is not dependent on you. It should embolden you to go, I don't have the words to say. God goes, good, come along. I've got them for you. I'm scared. Good, come with me. I'm secure. But I don't know enough. That's all right. I've got all the knowledge you need. 
So it, it, it should embolden our passion and take away our fears. What's more, this passion should never, this passage, this chapter should never cause you to resist coming to faith in Christ or following hard after him because you fear that God has not set his love on you. I'm not sure. Am I called? Am I elect? I don't know. But God has placed his love on you. You know. To even wonder such things and to ask such questions is evidence enough that God is calling you. And God is wooing himself, you to himself. I wonder if, uh uh-huh, he is. Don't resist. It's called irresistible grace for a reason. So friends, the beauty of God's sovereignty is that underneath absolutely everything, the pain, the struggles, the joys, the blessings, the bruisings, beneath all those things is the undeserved grace of God. And that undeserved grace of God is working out an eternal plan for your good and for his glory. Amen? Father God, we we thank you for your character, that you truly are God. You are God, and we know, Lord, from this section of Scripture, that your purpose in showing mercy is to reveal your glory, your person, your character. We thank you that you have been faithful through all the generations, including ours, and in displaying this mercy, extravagant mercy. Lord, we pray that these words would so cause us to burn and desire to display your glory to the nations. So help us, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to stay in our own category as humanity while constantly yearning to understand you, our God and our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.